Would you open your Bibles once again this morning to the book of the Psalms? We are in number 10 this morning as we continue the summer in the Psalms. I hope that you have found the joy of reading the Psalms of the day. So today is the 16th, so we're reading number 16 today, number 46, number 76, 106, and 136 and I trust they'll be a blessing to you. We're working on our Psalms memorization. So we're memorizing Psalm 1 together. If you've already memorized Psalm 1 at some point in your youth, we're memorizing Psalm 2 then, in addition to that, at some point over the summer months. So I hope that you're, you are engaging in those disciplines and making it a part of your own gaining of the knowledge of Christ and your growth in Christ as you pursue your own personal sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. Your Bible is open to Psalm 10. I'd like to read the entirety of the psalm, please, together. Would you follow along as I read? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts... Of his heart's desire, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear (coughs) to hear, (coughs) to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. And we thank the Lord for his word. 
Most recently, Gallup, in a survey of the American populace, concluded that, and found more than concluded, that at present, 81% of Americans express belief when they are asked the simple question, do you believe in God? 81%. Now, that's down from previous years. In 2017, that number was 87%. And it was a record low since the question was first asked in 1984. In, excuse me, 1944. In 1944, when the question first was asked, do you believe in God? 96% believed. So there's no question there's been a change in the American populace. As we saw in Charity's presentation, there certainly has been a change in the European continent. But I have a question. If 81% of the people, four out of five, 81% of the people, I'm no great mathematician, but let me think. There's 330 million people in the United States. That's what, 270 million or so? Of people in the United States, if asked the simple question, do you believe in God? Four out of every five people would answer in the affirmative. If that's true then would someone explain to me how can there can be so much evil in these United States? If 270 million of our fellow citizens say, yes, I believe in God. When we were reading Psalm 10 this morning together, for some of you, some of us, there may have been a ting in your brain, that sounds familiar. That's because the Apostle Paul has taken his influence in writing Romans chapter 3 from Psalm 10. You remember what Paul wrote in Romans 3? There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. That statement, I think when some people read it, that there is none who seek after God, they they do a double take on that and say, well, is that really true? That there's no one who seeks after God? I would simply suggest to you that read your homepage on whatever internet server you use. It seems proven on any given day that in our culture, no one seeks after God. And yet, if 81% of the populace says, I believe in God, but the behavior doesn't look like that, how do we account for this? Well, many have called what's happened here in Psalm chapter 10 practical atheism. It's not a, it's not a thorough atheism, but it is a practical one. You can see it throughout the Psalm. The psalm begins with a question. Why? Why do you? It's a question addressed from the psalmist to the God of heaven. Why do you stand afar off? This seems to be, doesn't it, a very common reply to God when his people, as the text says at the end of verse 1, when they find themselves in genuine evil situations, 
If you've been reading the Psalms over the summer months, you've seen this question, Lord, why? Repeatedly. It's incredibly common. There's another question which is somewhat of the second side of the same coin. It begins the first verse of chapter 13 of the 13th Psalm. How long, O Lord? The repetition of these two questions, why, Lord, and how long, O Lord? The repetition of them in the Psalms seems to suggest that there's a commonality of the question. Lord, how long is this going to go on? Lord, why do you seem to stand by idly and do nothing about this trouble? I've asked the questions. Lord, why aren't you engaging? Lord, why aren't you doing something about this? Lord, how long until you're actually going to do something about the evil that is present in my current situation? I've asked the question. I suspect you've asked the question too. The question that the psalmist is raising in verse 1 has to do with God's involvement in the problem. He calls these problems that he has at the end of one times of trouble. Do you know times of trouble? Presently now, at the moment, do you know times of trouble? Have you in the past known times of trouble? As you look into the future with the limited capacity that we have, which is none, but as you anticipate and think about the future, Do you think times of trouble are brewing? They're on the horizon. Well, if the answer to any of those questions is yes, as it relates to you, this, in fact, then might be a psalm for you. To the psalmist, here's what it feels like. It feels like, as we read verse 1, to him, in his times of trouble, as he experiences this evil, to him, it feels like God is standing a long way away from him. Or, as the text says, that God is actually hiding from his servant. And that's troubling. Because that's not what the Lord says he will do. The Lord says that he will be an ever-present help in time of need. The Lord says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But the psalmist's feeling does not coincide, does not line up with the psalmist's experiences. I want to remind us that the Lord said to us that if we seek him, we will find him. And it wasn't God who was hiding in the garden. It was Adam and Eve who were hiding in the garden. And yet this is the psalmist's expression. This is how he is thinking and feeling at the moment. But what's curious is you read the 10th Psalm. The anxiety that has overcome the psalmist is not really about the problem. The anxiety that he is experiencing as a believer is that it, it appears to him. His perception is that God is not involved in his problem. 
He raises subsequent questions. It's the kind of questions that we raise when we wonder if God is involved in the problem. We ask, does God actually care about me? Is God going to do anything about this? Is God even able to do anything about this? When we read verse 1, all the psalmist sees is God's inactivity and God's inaccessibility. And he has concluded that God must be disinterested in him. This is the anxiousness that drives his communication in Psalm 10. Which raises a question that I think we should ask. Is the Lord neglectful of his people? Does the Lord save his people from their sin and then leave them to live as if they had no intimate connection to God as Father. The questions that the psalmist raises in the early parts of the psalm seem to me, at least at least in my world, maybe not in yours, but at least in my world, seem to be incredibly common questions. I suspect they are common questions for all believing people. So what is the problem? We can see how the psalmist is feeling about it. What is the actual problem? He really describes it then beginning in verse 2. And in this part of the psalm, he goes at length to describe the characteristics of the wicked. In fact, you see in verses 2, 3, 4, 13, and 15, the word wicked used to describe The problem, the wicked are persons, people. What about the wicked? He says in verse 5 that it always seems like the wicked, like, like they get away with everything. So look at verse 5. His ways, they're, they're always prospering. They have no interest in God, but look at them. They're rich, they're healthy, they don't seem to have any problems, everybody likes them, and yet their lives are just marked by horrible wickedness. In fact, they actually get away with murder, the text says. It really is a riddle, doesn't it, isn't it? It can seem like the wicked are always prospering, can't it? The riddle is, if obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings conflict, the riddle is Psalm 1, if blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, if that's blessedness, how is it that this guy, verse 8, actually does get away with murder? How is that a reality? Luther called Psalm 10 the most complete description of the wicked man contained in the whole of the Bible. He's dominated by arrogance multiple times. So look in verse 2, it's the pride. In verse 3, it's the boast. And again, in verse 4, it is the proud. He is incredibly arrogant about his life his lifestyle, and who is the ultimate authority in his life. 
The psalmist goes on to describe his behaviors, listing them in verse 4. For example, that this arrogant, wicked individual denies God. God is in none of his thoughts, the end of the psalm in verse 4 says. What is the epitome of arrogance? The epitome of arrogance is not holding out our achievements and asking everyone to applaud us after we show them one of our achievements. The epitome of arrogance denies God's involvement in our lives in any way at all. The wicked man in this psalm is, in fact, a practical atheist. He's not denying God's existence. God God exists. He is denying, as we read the psalm, that God pays any attention to him. And he asserts that he himself pays no attention to God. Therefore, he does what he wants. Because God isn't paying any attention to him, and he isn't paying any attention to God. So he does what he wants, and the only thing that directs his actions is the four-time repeated expression of his heart. So you see in verse 3, it is his heart's desire. Verse 6, he says in his heart. Verse 11, he says in his heart. Verse 13, he has said in his heart. He is one of the fools who listens to his heart. He is one of the one of the valedictorians who stands before the high school class and says to all the classmates, follow your heart. He does what he does. She thinks what she thinks. They act like they act because there is no consideration of the mind of God on anything related to himself. And there is no accountability at all about anything to anyone else but me. It's like Monte Cristo says in his book, as Dumas records and writes about Monte Cristo, and they are asking Monte Cristo, to whom is he accountable? And Monte Cristo says, Monte Cristo is accountable only to Monte Cristo. So this one in Psalm 10 just does what he wants. He answers only to himself. And because he answers only to himself, he can do the things that he does without any strain of conscience. So in verse 2, he can persecute the poor. Well, who does that? Well, this wicked, arrogant man does that. When... When anyone might say to him, listen, are you sure that's the best thing to do? He responds in verse 6, I won't be moved. This is who I am. I do what I do. And there's no one that can stand in my way. I'll never be in adversity, verse 6. In verse 8, we're told right in the middle of the verse that he murders the innocent. In verse 8, again, he abuses the helpless. His eyes are secretly fixed. He looks for those who are weak, those who are susceptible, 
and he abuses. And the latter part of verse 8 and into verse 9, he schemes how to take advantage of people. So he lies in wait and he catches and he draws into a net. And he does all of this because he is accountable to no one except to God, except to himself and never to God. But it's really curious when the psalm continues that the one who in verse 4 gives no thoughts to God suddenly has a thought about God. Look in verse 11. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. So it seems to some extent God is in his thoughts. He's not a convinced atheist, but he is a practicing atheist. Convinced or practicing, either way, to this individual, God is irrelevant. He will do what he wants. The only place where God is not is in the thoughts of the wicked. God is removed from his mind. And it's really interesting, the detail that is given in this psalm to what he says Not only does he do what he wants, but he will say what he wants. So look at the list that is in verse 7. Cursing. His mouth is just full of this. And deceit and oppression. Under his tongue. What is it that is, that is in his mouth? Trouble and iniquity. This is a, significant list. I mean, the psalmist simply could have said he has a bad mouth. But he goes into the detail to show you the severity of it. His mouth is vile. And you'll note that the text says his mouth is full of this. He opens it. This is what comes out. Cursing, deceit, abusive language, whatever incites trouble, whatever initiates iniquity. There is something to be discovered here then, brothers and sisters. Our mouths are one indicator, not the only one, but certainly a significant one. Our mouths are one indicator of the presence and domination of pride in our lives. That is to say, pride in the heart comes out in the mouth. And what is it going to look like? It's going to sound like cursing and deceit and abusive language and trouble and iniquity. And think a little bit further about this. If our mouths are an indicator of the presence and domination of pride, then our defense of a vile mouth is an affirmation of our pride. So let me say those two again so you don't miss them. If the presence of this kind of speech in our mouths is an indicator, it points in the direction, you've got a pride problem. If its presence points 
to the domination of pride, then our defense of it is an affirmation of our pride. You say, I still don't get it. Okay, here's the affirmation. Well, that's just how I talk. Here's the affirmation. Listen, what you see is what you get. I say what's on my mind. The affirmation is, if you don't like it, don't listen. The presence is an indication of the domination of pride. It's on display in this man. The affirmation is in our defense of it. He says what he wants because he considers only himself. And when he considers only himself, this paves the way for the abuse of others in his words and his deeds. In fact, he says, God will not notice. You know, may none of these in this list ever be in my mouth. And may none of these ever be in your mouth. When we, when we, out of the abundance of our pride, speak this way, in that moment, we are practicing practical atheism. We say about the God who hears all, that he is no different than those idols that the prophet talked about who have ears but do not hear. That is the practical outplay of our behavior. May it never be so of us that we are practical atheists while at the same time singing on a Lord's Day immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most gracious, most glorious, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. In verse 5, the wicked assumes he is out of God's sight. In truth, he is doing well. The psalmist notes that his ways are prospering. And he's doing well, and the psalmist notes that this wicked man has not received God's judgment. And that also is true. The judgment of God has not come upon this individual, despite everything that he's done. Despite his persecution of the poor. Despite his murdering of the innocent. Despite his secretly prowling after the helpless, and on and on the list goes, despite all of that, he has yet to receive God's judgment. And I would remind us, do not confuse the Lord's patience and merciful delay with either indifference or ignorance. Don't confuse those. The text says that God's thoughts are far above this man. In verse 5, that, that simply means that the man doesn't see what's overhead and waiting to drop on him. 
in reality, God's patience is intended to bring us to repentance. But when God's patience does not bring one to repentance, boldness in sin follows. Look, I got away with it once. I can get away with it again. I've got away with it for 10 years. I can get away with it for my lifetime. When God's patience does not bring one to repentance, actions become more aggressive, language becomes more abusive and sinful. What does God intend in his delay? God intends mercy in his delay. But what God intends as merciful delay becomes an agent for multiplying sin. Is the thing that Paul condemns when he writes, should we sin that grace may abound, God forbid. So you see the effect of pride in the 10th Psalm. It keeps one from seeking after God. It's interesting that in verse 13, he is secure in his lifestyle. There's, there's no reason for change. It's, it's all good because at the end of verse 13, he has said, you, God, you will not require an account. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, wrote about this verse this, a carnal, settled security will let in a whole army of lusts in the soul. It's a dangerous place to be, to feel secure in a sinful lifestyle. It's a dangerous place to be, to act and to live as if there is no God. It is a dangerous place to be, to be a practical atheist. It is very dangerous to be one of the 81%, one of the 270 million. It is very dangerous to be in that position and say, yes, I believe in God, while practically living as if you deny his very existence. It's very dangerous. But I can very easily, and maybe you can too, I can very easily dismiss that and say, hey, you people better pay attention. But I have to wrestle with the question, how often and in what ways am I a practical atheist? I've really been wrestling with that question this week. In what ways do I think that God is like those those graven and carved idols? He has eyes, but he does not see me. In what ways I've had to wrestle this week and think, okay, God is no different than those, those carved images. They give those carved images ears, but they can't hear. How often, in what ways, is this true of me? Those those carved and graven images must be placed from one place to another to move. They can't be both here and here. And how often, how often do I think, well, God is God doesn't know. He's over dealing with something in France or wherever else he is. He's not dealing with anything in this place in Evergrove Heights. It's a practical atheism. Have you entertained that question? 
how often and in what ways am I a practical atheist? Living as if he will never see. Engaging as if he does not require an account. So this is the oppression that the psalmist faces. It has driven him to a moment of anxiousness. His feelings are dominating him. So what does he do? The psalmist prays. His prayer is really the middle part of the psalm. It's verses 12 to 15. We see an incredible boldness in his prayer. He says at 12, Arise, O Lord. When he makes that petition to the Lord, that's not a statement about the Lord's activity. Lord, you've been sleeping. It's really time to get up and do something. That's not what the psalmist is doing. When he says, Arise, O Lord, in his prayer, this is a plea for the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. So what can the Lord do? O Lord, lift up your hand. Because he says in verse 14, Contrary, Contrary to how the wicked think, you have seen, verse 14. The request that the psalmist is making is that the God of heaven would stop all expressions of wickedness, that he would break the arm, that he would make it impossible for the wicked to do the wicked thing that he does, and that God would go until there is no more wickedness to be found. This is his prayer. But did you notice what's missing in the psalm? There's no answer to the original question. It's not there. Why, Lord, are you hiding from me? Why do you stand afar off? Why haven't you engaged? Why does it appear to me that you are indifferent that you are disinterested in it. There's no answer to that question. The riddle is not resolved. And have you noticed in your Bible reading, and have you noticed in your Christian life, that few riddles are resolved for us? Have you noticed that? God rarely informs about his actions, God rarely answers and God rarely justifies to his people his actions or his inactivity. But what does he do? He does what the psalmist says in his prayer. God helps, God hears, and God does right by his people. So you notice then how the confidence of the psalmist rises. The confidence of the psalmist goes up when he meditates on God's righteous rule. This is verse 16. The Lord is king and he is king forever. And what's the Lord going to do? The Lord is going to uproot evil. And what is the Lord going to do? He is going to be like a father to the fatherless. He will defend the rights of his children. The riddle is not solved in the 10th Psalm. 
But the focus of the psalmist is shifted. This is how we are to respond in times of trouble, when it seems like God is afar off. We are not to look to answers for the riddle primarily. Instead, we are to change our focus and look to the God who cares for his people. Verse 14 seems to me to be the absolute key verse in the whole psalm. It begins with, but you. Throughout the psalm of the, of the verse, you see, but you, you, the middle of the verse, your, later on in the verse, you, next word in the verse, you. What does the psalmist do? He commits himself. He abandons himself to God. Whatever the trouble is that is before him, whatever the trouble is before us, the trouble can be faced because the trouble is not faced alone. Have you noticed, have you ever noticed this about yourself? How many of God's people choose to face their troubles alone? They live like practical atheists. With no regard that the Lord is king forever. With no regard that he will uproot evil. With no regard that he will care for the fatherless. So when the Lord does not act in a fashion or a time frame. Which they deem he needs to act. Well. It's then that we become practical atheists. And so we think to ourselves, our hearts communicate to us, well, you're just going to have to work this out on your own, Mike, because God's not going to take care of this for you. We become practical atheists because there's very little actual bold prayer. Very little. Oh, Lord, arise. Oh, Lord, don't forget the humble. Very little bold prayer appealing to the king and committing ourselves to the king. There's little talking to ourself of the Lord's supremacy in all things and over all people. It's, it's amazing to me that by the time we get to the 16th verse of the psalm, that the psalmist's disposition is no longer one of anxiety, but now one of calm. So what calms his feelings? It is verse 14 when he abandons himself to the Lord. But you, you, your hand, you, you. The sole help, the sole help of God's people is their abandonment to their God who has promised according to the text which you just read to help like a father helps. That's what it's like in trouble, right? Dads are supposed to help. I was just thinking about this this morning, Jen. Jennifer was... Three. We lived in Midland, Michigan at the time. Three or oh, maybe four. 
How many? How? Four. We're just, I'm having some, I was just thinking about this just now. Jennifer was four. We were living in Midland, Michigan. There was a, some of you know this story. There was a crockwell in our neighbor's backyard. The crockwell is, it's fed by, by seepage from the soil. So it doesn't go down like the well here at our church building hundreds of feet to gain from this, you know, purified water. There's just a crock well. You know, it's maybe the size, the, the cover's maybe the size of the pulpit here. And, and Jennifer and Emily were playing in our neighbor's backyard. I had just had the first ACL reconstruction. Brenda had just given birth to Jeffrey. It was a Sunday afternoon. I remember that. Jennifer and Emily were outside. Emily came to the back door and as I think I have it correct, you know, bottle hanging out of her mouth, biting on the nipple of the bottle. And she comes to the back door and, and knocks on the door and she's not quite two maybe. So Jennifer would have been not quite five. And Brenda opens the door and Emily says, Jennifer, water, in her little toddler speech. Water? We don't live near a lake or a river. No standing water. Brenda goes out of the house. She finds Jennifer. Jennifer had stepped over this and onto this crock well, and what was covering it was a rotted piece of plywood. She went down, boom, right into the bottom of the well. There was an overflow pipe in the well, and Jennifer was hanging onto the well, seemingly as calm as she could be. She had told Emily, go get mom. So Emily goes and gets mom. Brenda comes and gets me. I hobble up the stairs. We go outside. And I got there, and I remember vividly Jennifer looking up to her dad and saying, help me, daddy. Well, Jennifer's here, so we obviously got her out. But that's what the Lord does. So twice in the text we're told about the fatherly relationship of the Lord to his people. You would say, you say, well, what did you do to get Jennifer out? Well, to tell you the truth, the way that this happened, and again, I didn't mean, mean to tell you this this morning, just in my, on my mind. So, I went in head first. And, um, now past my waist, so, you know, that pivot point is now gone. I told Brenda to hold on to my ankles. And, I, you said, didn't you give any thought to the consequences of that action? So I gave no thought to that at all. There was one thing and one thing to do only. That was it. To rescue her. To pull her out. That's what dads are supposed to do, right? But in the situation that the psalmist says, it's he says, like, I don't have one. And the Lord says, I will be to you Oh, Father, well, i got to bring this to a close. 
we get to the end of the text and there's just anticipation that the Lord is going to deliver the hurting psalmist, however distant or however delayed. Look what he says. You will strengthen. You see in verse 17, you will prepare the heart. You will strengthen their heart. There is one promise that is not delayed. The trouble might not end immediately. The wrongs might not be righted in the fashion of time that you think it should. But here is a promise that will not be delayed to God's people. You will strengthen their heart. Same answer that Paul received from the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I prayed that this thorn in the flesh should be removed from me. And the answer that came back to me was, my grace is sufficient for you. So let me just give a couple of pastoral thoughts as I've been working through this psalm this week. Our experience in this world is going to be the experience of the psalmist. We are going to be in times of trouble. So what do we do? We do what the psalmist did. After expressing our sorrows to the Lord, we entrust ourselves to the Lord, knowing that we are helpless to do anything substantive and that the king will help and the king will hear and the king will do the right thing by me and the king will bring all opposition to an end. A second pastoral thought. What we see as the psalm progresses is the psalmist moving away from walking by sight to walking by faith. What we see is the psalmist turning from his feelings, his feelings which had been informed by his senses. His senses were God isn't anywhere close. It's like he's hiding. I can't see him. I can't hear him. I don't recognize his presence. That's what his senses were telling him. His senses were informing his feelings. But what we see is he is turning from those feelings to a settled reality brought about by truth. It's not an easy turnaround. It really isn't. But it is the way to turn around. Some of the realities that people face are incredibly difficult. Minors. I haven't even suffered. But you, you, you have suffered. And your senses are informing your feelings. And it's left you wondering, is God, is God a father to me? Those feelings are turned around and brought to rest as we embrace the truth that God reveals to us about himself. I'm trying to think of how to how to land this airplane for quite a while and 
just sitting here on the platform. I thought, okay, here's a good way to land it. We'll see if it works or not. Do you remember the Lord's words that close Matthew's gospel? It's the Great Commission, right? All authority has been given to me, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them. And then do you remember his last words? Lo, I am with you always. God grant that we would see that the Lord Jesus Christ is always with his people. Despite the times of trouble. And God grant that we are freed from a practical atheism that wonders if God sees or hears or is interested. God grant that we are freed from that. That the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And he has come to seek and to save the lost. And he has come to lead his people. He has come to be the head of the body of the church. And may our souls then rest comfortably in him. Well, may the Lord help you and understand his word. Can we pray together, please?